Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to NetIP Spotlight, Live Your Potential, where we invite guest experts to speak on a variety of trending topics that matter to you. I'm Justine Alawalia, your host, and I want to warmly welcome you to our show this evening. I know everyone's crazy busy these days, and appreciate your investing your valuable time in joining us this evening. To give you a lay of the land, our guest speaker and I will be discussing his insights for about 20, 25 minutes. And I'd like to give everyone a heads up that after about 25 minutes of discussion between our guest speaker and myself, you'll have the opportunity to ask him any questions that you may have. So with that, let's jump in. Today's guest speaker is Toby Chowdhury. Toby Chowdhury is a strategist, award-winning consultant, advisor to the White House, and co-founder of Social X Design. For 15-plus years, he has been doing work in strategic communication, and high-impact engagement campaigns in politics and public affairs in D.C. He believes in helping visionary leaders and organizations inspire and engage the public, motivate action, and achieve ambitious goals that benefit people. How does he do it? White House advisor on race-based initiatives and global democracy and governance campaigns, strategist uh, behind State Department, European Commission, I'm sorry, European Commission, major civic engagement campaigns, and inspiring movements around the world. Welcome to the show, Toby. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And what an impressive bio. Um, now, how did you first get interested in politics? Well, you know, I think I probably first got interested as, uh, as a kid. Uh, my sister was, uh, you know, a lawyer much older than me, uh, very involved in public policy, and gave me a quick education very early in life around activism, and it's what got me uh, very uh, wound up in in political debate, um, both in you know high school extracurricular, uh, and then also in partisan politics uh, later in college. Um, also, you know, it's it's always funny when people ask me or when they talk about what I do, because every time I try to explain it to my uh, to my folks, they really don't understand. So you know, this one time I. I tried to uh, take three hours out and take, you know, my dad out to dinner and explain to him exactly what I do. (laughs) And great, okay. At the the end of this dinner, he was laughing and um, and uh, finally said to me, "Are are these all paid positions, right?" (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, so Uh there's still a lot of confusion about it. But you know, to to widen the lens a little bit, you know, I um, okay. Uh, as soon as I got involved in politics early, I, I started working on political campaigns. Uh, I managed um, um, uh, races up in Massachusetts where I grew up. Uh, I became Al Gore's deputy press secretary when he ran for president. Um, worked in the Clinton White House doing communications. Uh, went in from you know then when George Bush uh, became president, I um, 
uh, you know, flipped to the movement side, uh, worked for the party and several think tanks uh, before I opened my own um, consultancy that uh, dealt with uh, many political clients and, and took a lot of what we learned from politics and applied it to uh, both the corporate and the social and NGO sectors. Wow. Well, not to put you too much on the spot, but I'm fascinated that you were in the Clinton White House. Any interesting stories that you can share, any anecdotes from your experiences, whether with the Gore campaign or with the Clinton White House or um, even, you know, with the think tank, anything that comes to mind that, uh, you know, just really left an impression on you? Well, I think there are plenty of stories. There are many stories. And, you know, just marking just the change between what – what Washington has been like uh, between the Clinton years and the Obama years. You know, I think, uh, uh, you know, this is an extraordinary political moment for so many different reasons. And one of them is this big trend, this major trend that's happening around us, which has been this sort of rise of diverse America. And we see that change every day here in Washington in the halls of power, right? During the Clinton years, when you looked around, people looked a lot more homogeneous than they do right now uh, in those same sure. halls of power. Um, and there's probably a moment, I think, in 2004 that really captured this for me with respect to where Indian Americans are. And I remember being in New Hampshire. It was during the, the presidential primaries. It was just a couple of days before the actual presidential primary election in New Hampshire. And I remember that uh, you know, an older woman, a family friend from the community, uh, invited me over uh, on on the eve of, of the primaries. And I figured, you know, this is a terrific opportunity to go over and have some chai and some samosas. And, you know, after a long week of retail politics, as it works in New Hampshire, this was going to be a you know, respite of sorts. And uh, I'll never forget going to her home and her actually then taking me down to the basement and finding uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of Indian Americans all gathered in her basement uh. to decide who, who they, but but they weren't there to just snack and um, and okay. to chat about politics. They were actually there to decide who they were going to vote for as a block in the next day's presidential election. So now, you know, to have this many Ooh. Indian Americans in a state like New Hampshire, where the population is very low to begin with, was quite significant. Sure. And this was back in 2004. But it was a it was a symbol of what we're seeing across the board within the community, which is that there's this unprecedented amount of political activity happening within the community and outside the formal presidential campaigns, you're seeing activists who are building a movement to force changes that might, uh, might otherwise never take place. And uh, they're starting to see fruits in their labor. And it's, um, I think it's actually quite, quite exciting to see Indian Americans come together to solve our community's everyday problems and to change America. Absolutely, to have a voice. That's actually very exciting. That is very interesting. Um, well, tell me, you know, in terms of what, what led you, is part of that the reason uh, which led you to start your own company in terms of recognizing that trend with Indian Americans getting more active? Or tell me, tell me what, what led you to start your company to begin with. Well, it was an interesting thing that happened. Well, we were working with the Obama White House early um, uh, there was a, a pretty clear challenge that the uh, White House was confronting, which was, you know, given, for example, this, this rise in, in diversity, uh, how, does, how does the federal government actually deliver federal services and protections uh, to all kinds of constituencies, right? As, as, as I was observing back then, 
all of a sudden there was no mainstream in America. There are many streams. Uh, and just the old ways of connecting with uh, its citizenry didn't work. So, you know, as part of a team that started to rethink how that connection was happening. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about it more, but we ended up flipping the script and, and um, essentially designed a, a new way of, of connecting and, and engaging and interacting with, with citizens in, in some key constituencies and found engagement scaling. But what's more interesting about that for me, for me personally was that in doing that work, uh, we found my, I found myself in dozens of different cities. But while in Silicon Valley, uh, there was a group of folks who came together who were doing work that was largely known in Silicon Valley, but less so on the East Coast, uh, around design thinking and a new approach uh, to solving complex problems. And when we were able to uh, combine that with uh, sort of the approach of community organizing and, uh, and social movement work uh, that, that I had built a career around, it, it just yielded amazing returns. Uh, and we ended up scaling that and created a company out of that work. And so now, you know, uh, my company has offices in Washington, D.C., and we have offices out in the Bay Area, um, including working with um, you know, several folks in the Stanford ecosystem, um, and it's been, it's been just amazing the new sort of exploration and discovery that we've been able to make, um, both in impact and professionally. Oh, that's fascinating. And they almost see, seeded in that sense by sort of the design concept, concepts in the, that are coming out of the, the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley, and, and really mirroring that with, um, with what's been done in the past and doing it in a whole different way. That's, that is very interesting. I'm wondering... Um, you know, given your experience and expertise over the years, um, and you must have some perspectives about the impact of Narendra Modi's election on Indo-U.S. relations. Um, to take a little bit of a different direction here, tell, tell us about that. Well, you know, it's actually a good segue, right, because, you know, a lot of the work that we were doing with the White House, and certainly that we're doing with my company, is all about, you know, how, how we confront the, you know, the complex challenges that society is is facing these challenges that are too big to handle because, you know, they're too complicated. Um, and this requires an, you know, a unique approach to tackle those challenges. Well, what we just saw happen in India as, you know, it's, uh, it's almost becoming a cliche to say it, but it's a historic election, right? More voters uh, went to the polls in India uh, than has ever happened in any democratic experiment in the history of, of humankind, right? Um, and in that also, you had an extraordinary number of millennial voters, right? So if there's one other big trend that's happening besides diversity around the world, we're seeing the rise of a new generation, uh, both in the U.S. and in India, right? More voters under the age of 35 in India than uh, in any other country that we've ever seen, right, democratically. So, so it's important to take a step back and look at what the voters were saying in India. And clearly there was a mandate for economic growth, and clearly there was a mandate from the voters saying that not only did they want to change in direction, uh, but they want to see uh, corruption um, uh, tampered back, and, and they want to see more competence in, in, in their leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also important to you know, realize that Narendra Modi won with an overwhelming majority of the parliamentary support, but he really won with about a third of the actual popular vote, right? Uh, so there probably is about 60 or 70% of the country that voted against him. 
still, mm-hmm. this is an extraordinary moment in India, right? Because now all of a sudden there's an opportunity to shape the country uh, in a way that uh, it hasn't before. And it'll be interesting to see how this same electorate holds this leadership's uh, feet to the fire uh, and it creates some accountability for bold changes because that's, that's really what the time is demand for India right now, not only for the region, but also globally because of its position in the world. Sure. Now, um, let's switch back to the U.S. for a minute here. And, uh, you know, for the benefit of listeners who aspire to a career in politics in the U.S. in this country, what, uh, what do you think are the building blocks that are really needed to develop, for, for one to develop a career in U.S. politics? Well, you know, I think uh, it's interesting, you know, especially after this election in India. You know, probably some of the lessons that mm-hmm. we learned there are helpful to, you know, answering this question as well, which is okay. all about what does it really take to create leadership, right? Uh, I've worked sure. with many different political leaders, people in public office, uh, with uh, many people running political campaigns. And, you know, in my estimation, for me, I go through my own filter of who I'd be willing to work with and who I don't work with. Uh, and there okay. are probably three characteristics that become very important for running for office, I think, in, in any market, right? Uh, one is that's probably very important is that a leader has to be able to envision what a better future looks like, right? So in any kind of political campaign, uh, especially if there's an election, uh, voters are really choosing who is the best choice for the future, right? So it's important to have an idea of what that looks like, and that means being able to tell that story in a way that moves people to act. It means being able to think about big societal impact. It means being able to articulate a clear vision and to to find creative Mm -hmm. solutions to complex problems. It means having the courage to be a pioneer. Uh, That's all that goes into envisioning a better future. Second, uh, a person must be able to figure out how they can drive breakthrough change, right? This means how do you engage a whole system for change? How do you create a sense of urgency? Uh, how do you unleash and accelerate change and, and deal with uh, unpredictability and, and at the same time protect bottom line viability, which in this case might be uh, political support? And third, it's important to be able to orchestrate creative teams, right? This means being able to empower others to create with you. It means being able to bring together people from different fields to uh, be able to overcome obstacles. It means unleashing creativity within your organization and, and harvesting networks. Um, but once all of these three things are in place and a candidate really or a, you know, someone in politics has uh, an idea of you know, what issues they're most passionate about and where they feel a sense of purpose, uh, it's important to apply an explorative mindset and to get involved, right? And that usually first happens sure. at the local level uh, or wherever one connects the most with, uh, with a community, uh, and it grows from there. And ultimately, uh, the most successful people we see in politics are the folks who are able to master this profession, master themselves, and master uh, a set of constituencies that they connect with uh, authentically. Interesting. Well, it's hard to, you know, um, with what you just shared with everyone, it's very insightful. And I'm also thinking it's hard to, um, you know, imagine with, with your discussion of leadership in terms of envisioning what, you know, better future looks like in terms of creating that sense of urgency and, um, 
you know, in orchestrating the empowered teams, it really, to me, is very striking how that can be analogized to startups in the private sector, to starting a company in the private sector. And I'm wondering what your views might be between the similarity, you know, about any similarities between political campaigns and, and startup companies. Well, I'll tell you, you know, if you look at whether it's, you know, the Indian elections where they just spent about, what, $5 billion U.S. dollars in, you know, wow. in, uh, uh, or, or the Obama election, uh, the 2012 election where in the U.S. we spent about $6 billion U.S. dollars, um, each political campaign is like a startup, right? And it's, it's moving sure. a very finite amount of time, a, a, a large budget, it's... Uh, it's having to build a team that's, um, that has a broad and deep scope. Uh, it has a very clear um, metric for success. Uh, it's, it's no different, right? The political campaigns are probably the oldest, um, you know, iterating startups that we've had in, in democracies. Um, so there's a lot of similarity, right? And just like a startup goes through a creative process where it, it learns and discovers and senses and then it envisions and creates prototypes and then tests and then has to have a very fast feedback loop where it's constantly correcting its product or service. Uh, similarly, a political campaign goes through similar iterations and the most successful in both columns um, are the ones who are able to create that kind of collective intelligence uh, to prosper. Um, so it's, it's, they're very much similar ideas. Now, what's been fascinating is that when you look at Silicon Valley, it has it always said that it's trying to create societal impact, and, and perhaps now with uh, the proliferation of startups uh, and, and private equity in, in startups, it's, uh, it's always questionable what kind of societal impact they're having there. Just like in political campaigns, one should always keep asking, you know, what exactly are our leaders uh, fighting for, and once they are in office, what exactly, uh, how are they going to, how are they going to lead? Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, startups and political campaigns are always questioning and wondering, uh, you know, what is the compass that uh, that drives them, that motivates them? Uh, but but when it comes to process, they're both exact. They work exactly through the same sorts of uh, of stages. Very interesting. Well, I appreciate you sharing your insights um, with us, Toby. And I'm wondering if you have any last thoughts or last message you'd like to share with our listeners before we go ahead and jump into Q&A and and answer our uh, listeners' questions. Well, I I think it would be great to open up for discussion and let's let's hear what people are thinking about. But I I think that this is probably what's, what's most fascinating about this moment to me, both in U.S. and in India, is... Um, is because of some of these extraordinary changes that are happening, not only in demographics, not only uh, in the way people are, um, uh, are uh, looking at themselves and their leaders, but also because of the changes that are happening in technology and, and our ability to communicate with one another, uh, as well as these changes in inequality uh, in our country, as well as in India, uh, where, you know, um, uh, economic growth is was the number one topic this time around, just like it is in the U.S. and has been in uh, several of the last elections. There is uh, a lot of uh, issues that everyday people are thinking about now more than ever, mostly around the economy and around the world uh, that need mm-hmm. to be solved, and it's really important to bring new approaches to, um, to solving those problems. 
but it all starts with people getting involved. And I think that's probably the most exciting thing about both of these last elections that have happened uh, on on either side of the world. Yeah, the, the engagement and people, you know, putting their voices into the whole debate and really taking part in it. So, um, well, speaking of taking part in and putting your voice in, and now is your chance, everyone, to ask Toby any questions which may have come up for you, anything on your mind. If you have a question, go ahead and press 1, and we'll go ahead and take your question. And I'm going to go ahead and start um, right here, and I'm going to take the question from Let's see. Um, the area code is 512, and it ends with 7250. Hi, caller. You're on the line. Hi. This is Jay Kinsara. Um, I work with the Hindu American Foundation, and I know Toby well, actually. So hi, Toby. Hey, Jay. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I had a question about... So Narendra Modi is probably one of the most contentious figures in global politics, and the Hindu American Foundation, um, we didn't endorse Narendra Modi, but we definitely felt that the conversation was very imbalanced here in the United States, especially around the issue of his visa and the issue of his... Uh, and there are certain organizations that were really lobbying the U.S. government, and they had a, they had a particular bent ideologically. Who... And I haven't gotten a clear answer from anybody yet, at the State Department, in a public fora, or anybody on the Hill. But I ask, who's to say that these organizations won't gain that type of traction again to bend the dialogue in another way that's clearly detrimental to U.S.-India relations? So if you have any insight on that, I would really appreciate it. So it's it's worth thinking about this in a couple of ways. And Jay, I want to make sure that it's clear that when I speak about this, that I'm not speaking on behalf of the administration or any other entity except for myself. But when sure. I look I at this, when I when I when I hear the questions, I mean, I think the question really is about you know, um, it's really about social issues. If if I'm hearing correctly, right? Um, I mean, I think there's no I think there's no debate at this point from from my perspective that that the rule that kept Narendra Modi from coming to the U.S., right, was, um, was administered strangely, right? It was, it was actually from this arcane sort of religious tolerance commission that was really looking at anti-Christian activity around the world and, and uh, picked sort of Narendra Modi after uh, some of the religious riots that were happening in, in Gujarat, happened in Gujarat um, as an example to show that it was uh, that they were you know making a list that transcended just Judeo-Christian faith. Um, and Narendra Modi was the only person on that list. And and it seems like after um, after that uh, list was made, it, it wasn't really expanded on. Right. So there's there's this also happened at a time when Narendra Modi was a regional figure. He wasn't a national figure. So I don't see any forces really pushing to, you know, revive uh, that mm-hmm. list. And, you know, I think President Obama and Secretary Kerry um, did a lot to reach out. They, you know, pulled out the, you know, the full suite of what they could to invite uh, the prime minister to uh, to come to the U.S., right? And he's now under a, a different status where a visa is not a problem. Mm-hmm. And it should also be noted, it should also be noted that, 
that the denial of the visa actually happened in the Bush administration and not in the present administration, too. So, um, yeah. you know, there are a lot of layers to this, right? But the bigger issue here is, you know, how is Narendra Modi going to lead as prime minister, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's no question that he's already started to reach out to leaders throughout South Asia, in Pakistan, um, around his uh, official swearing-in, uh, and this lays some signals to bear. But it's really important for him to transcend some of these social issues and to really focus, I think, at this moment in time on the economic issues that are facing India and the world, right? Um, and that, too, in a global sense. I, I, I think that there is probably some concern, right, because, you know, some folks are seeing his administration and not seeing uh, a huge representation of some minorities in the BJP party, right, which is now overwhelmingly the majority in parliament. Uh, but again, you know, the question is going to be how do they lead and how do they lead um, around issues that matter? You know, what does the new world order look like? What is defense going to look like in that region? What is the economic commitment going to look like, right? And, uh, and I think that's probably the most important piece of it. And it'll be, I don't see any U.S. organizing uh, against Narendra Modi personally, um, but I think that you will see folks who are trying to make sure that the conversation is, is where it needs to be had, right? Thank you. Well, thanks, Joe. We're going to go ahead and take the next question, and it's from... Area code 847 in the last four uh, digits, 8094. Welcome, Colin. Hi. Hi, thank you. Um, Toby, I was wondering, when the coverage in the U.S. is going on about the Indian elections, like you mentioned, it's a historical event, I felt it was rather sparse. And I know there's quite a few uh, comedians that made fun of, um, fun of that fact, that it was barely being covered. I was just wondering what you thought about the limited amount of coverage in the U.S. national news uh, sources compared to something such as that Sterling controversy or the uh, basketball team owner that made allegedly racist comments that was played over and over again. Do you think this is part of a lack of understanding um, in the U.S., a lack of interest, or what other factors do you think might contribute to that? You know, when I was young and first getting involved in politics, the same sort of question came to my head because I remember the day that Russia joined NATO, right, the, you know, the Cold War construct, on that day, instead of it leading headlines, um, I think all the headlines were about a, a certain incident with a woman named Lorena Bobbitt and, and, and her, uh, you know, uh, affecting uh, someone's <laughs> anatomy, right? Um, so I, I don't know that this is a problem with coverage of India specifically or speaks to a bigger question about how media covers world events. Um, but I will say what did stun me. I thought it was actually extraordinary, at least in Washington, D.C., the level of discussion that was happening uh, before the elections uh, in India. Uh, it was nothing like anything I'd ever seen before around discussion around uh, India. And... Um, and there was a real sort of sense in, in the power circles out here that, um, that this was a transformative election. It was more than just a historic election because of democratic output. It, was, it felt like a transformative moment where India can and still can redefine itself. So even though the news, even uh, in popular media, both in the U.S. and India, is about... Narendra Modi and who's being invited to what ceremonies, 
there's still a much larger discussion, I think, that's missing across the board, which is about how are people organizing. You know, I, think, I thought one of the most interesting things in this Indian election was the, was the sort of the rise of this new party, right, the AAP, and how early there was this real insurgency, which fizzled and failed in many ways, or at least uh, um, lost its, its momentum. But, but signal something much larger, which I think came out of the elections, and I think that's where the conversation should go, about how are people in India kind of taking government back into their own hands, and how are they uh, really kind of creating a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. You know, when I talk about, for example, that in India, they spent five U.S. billion dollars. Uh, that's a lot of money. And when you actually convert to buying power of the rupee, it probably makes it actually the most expensive election in the world. Um, but when you, look, when, you, when you look at that, you know, the real news that I wish I saw more of is who's, who's putting that money into the elections? You know, if you could probably peel it off and see that there's a handful of really large companies uh, powerful people in, in India who underwrote most of that election. And so when you really, um, you know, look at follow the dollar, uh, what does that mean for who is really determining these elections and, and what that means? And look, India is no different from the U.S. in the sense that there are no limitations on how much corporate money can go into elections. And these are the same questions that we should be asking ourselves in the U.S. And so, yeah, do I think the uh, coverage was... Uh, was enough? No, I don't think it was. Do I think that there's much more discussion needed? I definitely think so. But I want to make sure that the discussion is the right one, and that's really what, what the voters are saying and, and how, uh, how that all translates into you know, making lives better for, for the constituencies in, in throughout the country. Right? Well, thank you. I and actually, yeah, thank you very much. Go. And uh, we have one final question here. And if anyone wants to, and we're welcoming to more questions as well. If anyone has anything come up, but in the interim, let's take the um, the caller from 201 with the last digits of 6222. Hi, caller uh, from 201. Do we still have you? Hi, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, Toby, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to, to answer our questions today. Uh, it was very, very helpful to hear your insights. Uh, the question I have is earlier in the, in the discussion, uh, you mentioned the impact of the youth uh, in the Indian elections. Um, very curious to know uh, your, your insight on what the youth within the native community uh, can do to become involved uh, in the upcoming U.S. election uh, aside from just going out and voting, mm. great question. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you first of all how Indian Americans are getting involved. I was talking a little bit earlier about how you know activists are changing the conversation out there. But you know there there are other ways that Indian Americans specifically are beginning to to you know move the move the dialogue. Uh, you're seeing um, you know many uh, starting to lead in political fundraising, right? Um, they're starting to actually. Um, support candidates with uh, with their resources, and they're challenging politicians who don't support our values. Right, and we've seen this in in a few different elections out there, um, both on the east and the west coast. Um, uh, Indian Americans are mobilizing activists, their community, right, and they're recruiting and supporting strong candidates of our own. Uh, and we should continue to be doing that. Um, we're witnessing right now this new exciting generation of 
leaders and candidates from within the community gain popularity, right? Uh, they're gaining strength, institutional capacity. They're they're uh, they're operating with political sophistication they've never had before, and uh, and they're beginning to enjoy an expanded coalition that crosses, uh, you know, that cuts across many different constituencies, and and these are the different ways that we can actually transform America's political debate um, by putting forward these new priorities that you know how we can fix our troubled economy and reestablish our standing in the world. So. In addition to voting, right, there are uh, political uh, ways to um, support causes, right? There are campaigns to get involved in. If there's a candidate that you're particularly passionate about, it doesn't hurt to just call them up, uh, to call up their headquarters and see how you can get involved in the conversation more deeply. And probably, you know, I saw this throughout my career anyways, that you know, especially as Indian Americans, certainly my household um, and my parents and my, you know, the folks that I grew up with, they saw the country go from peace to war. They saw it go from prosperity to recession, from relief to terror, right? Um, like other working families, uh, obviously Indian Americans paid a price. You know, we saw wages go down. We saw unemployment go up. We saw retirement security go down. We saw poverty go up. We saw parents who... Uh, Who's uh, you know saw their school program scale back and college costs soar. Uh, uh, you know among Indian Americans, these we- weekend dinner conversations about politics have become discussions about what's needed to turn the country around for our community. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be having that discussion at scale in bigger ways. You know that that experience that I saw in New Hampshire uh, in 2004, which I saw replicated in places like Ohio and throughout the Midwest and certainly on the West Coast, there's no reason why we shouldn't be formalizing our own community discussions about what's at stake in this election. Um, We know, for example, that what's at stake is the very survival of the philosophy that attracted many of our parents to the U.S. and many of our peers to the U.S., this American promise that if you that if you work hard, you can do well enough to raise a family, to, to own a home, to pull away for retirement after a life of hard work. Uh, it is important that we have that discussion in a formal way and that we make sure that we are projecting what is important to us, to the politicians who are supposed to lead us. You know, I'll, I'll end the answer to this question with, with a, one anecdote, which is that throughout my career, if I've seen anything, it's that politicians don't really lead the march. Uh, people do. People are what make the march go forward. Uh, what happens is politicians run to the front of the parade once that march is pulled together. And this is a moment for Indian Americans, especially our generation, a younger generation of MedIP members, of, of participants in all the programming and the network. This is our time. This is our chance to bring that together for us and to start our march, not in a Democrat way, in a Republican way, but in a way that is meaningful for us and for our families and our longevity. And that's, that's what I think is the most interesting thing and most interesting ways that we can get involved on a daily basis. Well, thanks for, thanks for taking our listeners' questions, Toby. And I'm wondering if anyone um, wants to, if any of our listeners would like to contact you in the future, what, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm, uh, I guess like uh, like everyone else, I'm on all the social media channels now, uh, so all pretty right. easy to find there. Um, but let me also share my email address. Uh, my email address is toby, T-O-B-Y, at socialxdesign.com. Uh, I'd be happy, happy, happy to, um, to um, 
uh, connect with anyone who's interested in going deeper or who's interested in getting involved in politics. One of the one of the most beautiful things about the time that I came to Washington D.C. first, um, you know, over 15 years ago, is that there was a small group of uh, South Asian Americans who, to this day, have created a network in town here that uh, we would love to, especially hear from our South Asian or Indian American brothers and sisters. But anyone who really wants to talk about any of these issues, um, I'd be happy to not only uh, talk about them, but then to also connect you to with, with the people who are who are working on those issues here. Wonderful. Thank you, Toby. And thank you so much for being on and sharing your insights with our listeners. You're absolutely welcome. Thanks for having this discussion. Oh, wonderful. Now, in case you joined us late or would like to share the show with people in your life, I'd like to remind you that a recording of today's radio show will be sent out and additionally posted on Facebook. Appreciate your hanging out with us. Make sure to join us for next month's show, and we hope you'll be joining us at the 23rd Annual NetIP Conference this Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, where you'll have the opportunity to meet Toby and many other interesting speakers. Take care, everyone. Good night.